The Scholar and Feminist Conference, our annual conference, began in 1974 as a means of bringing together the best of academic feminist work and contemporary activism. And we believe that this issue not only intersects with feminism, but displays precisely those important connections between academic scholarship and activism that are so crucial to what has made the Barnard Center for Research on Women so important for nearly 40 years now. So we're very happy to be able to do a full conference on feminism and disability. It is true, however, that sometimes these issues of activism are close to home as well as in the broader world. And in this case, the question of the relationship between feminism and disability is one that has been raised with some urgency in recent years here at Barnard. As a women's college, Barnard has a long history of feminism, and we also have a relatively long history of commitment to accessibility for disabled students, faculty, and staff. This is due in large part to the efforts of Julie Marsteller, who here at Barnard became the first full-time dean for disabled students in the United States, and the campus was for some time a true leader in making college available and accessible to students with disabilities. In recent years, however, we seem to have lost our focus on disability access, openness, and integration. Decisions have been made about both buildings and events that have not taken these questions fully into account. And the members of the BCRW Advisory Board, along with the members of our conference planning committee, and many, many members of the Barnard community feel that it has come time to revive both our history and our focus. In other words, we need to find a way to make this history not a record of past accomplishment, which allows for current neglect, but rather a living history that will provide a source of inspiration and motivation for those attending to these issues now and into the future. And in order to do this, we join forces with our good friends at the Columbia Oral History Research Office um, and with longtime activists who I'm sure many of you know, both feminist and disability activist Yonester King. And we produced a few oral histories of women who have attended Barnard and Columbia. There is no better way to make history live, so to speak, than to do it live. One of our lunchtime workshops will focus on the oral histories with both Ionestra and Mary Marshall Clark, who's the director of the center, so, um, and that will be in this room if you want to learn more. Uh, but I want to show you clips from three of uh, the oral histories. Uh, one is a video audio clip, and two are slideshows with audio. Um, first, however, I do want to say a few words about Julie Marsteller, because uh, without her, we probably would not be here at Barnard today. Um, she spent a good deal of time thinking, although not just thinking, about women with disabilities. She saw that women with disabilities faced gender-specific issues, and this is now her words from the 1970s, quote, I think women with disabilities are doubly disadvantaged. Women's salaries tend to be lower. Disabled women's salaries are particularly low. But also expectations of disabled women can be lower than expectations of disabled men. I think that had I been a male child and not a female child, we wouldn't have waited until halfway through my senior year in high school to decide what to do about college. There just would be an expectation that a man is going to do something, end quote. And do something is precisely what Julie Marsteller did. She graduated from Barnard in 1969, served as assistant to, president, to the president of Barnard, and she applied for the first grants for wheelchair accessibility. She also served as the college archivist, um, and in 1979 became Dean for Disabled Students. She was the first chair of Barnard's ADA Access Committee and founder of the Office of Disability S Services. As you will hear in the oral histories, during the time that Julie Marsteller worked at Barnard and directly afterwards, our campus set a standard for access 
and students with disabilities, including Julie herself, often transferred to Barnard because we could better provide access to education than our, many of our peers. Over the course of the decades between 1979 and now, Barnard, and I think probably Barnard is not alone in this pr problem, we have had a mixed record on the need to create better, more just, and a more just world for all people, including those with disabilities. Our institution has acted in ways that are both encouraging and sometimes frustrating. We have acted sometimes with a clarity of purpose and sometimes in a manner that is neither sharp in focus nor clearly well thought out. So in the videos, we hear some histories of what it was like to be a student at Barnard and Columbia about some of these frustrations and about the up and down path that leads to social justice. We begin with uh, Simi Linton, who, as you know, helped us plan this conference and who will introduce the dance in the afternoon so you will all get to meet her in person. Depending on the day of the week, a writer and consultant and filmmaker, I'm working on a documentary film right now called Invitation to Dance. It is uh, the narrative arc of the documentary is based on my life experience as a disabled woman over the last 40 years. And it traces both my own development uh, and growth into disability as an identity, as, as part of who I am, as uh, at the same time the disability rights movement and the disability arts and culture movement and disability studies were evolving. And we're looking uh, in, in the film at the intersection of my life and experience and those movements, how it, they have influenced me and how I have had an impact and, and engagement with them. And the, uh, the focus of, of this inquiry, this path, is on dance as a coming out narrative, as an expression, creative expression, and as a sort of anti-stereotyped uh, way of thinking about disabled people uh, as joyful, as creative, as using our bodies in unexpected ways. So I, I didn't understand how to think about disability and disabled people as a constituent group. I didn't have a basis um, and a way to think about it. Um, but in my last year here, I took two, uh, there were two things that helped. One was that I took a class over at Barnard with, in uh, Psychology of Women with Mary Brown Parley. Um, and I told her that I was interested in uh, disabled women and our experience. And she was very enthusiastic. And I did, you'll be happy to know, uh, three oral histories uh, focused on disabled women and sexuality uh, in that class. Um, in 1977, I guess, and uh, I have that paper somewhere, <laughs> and uh, started to talk with other disabled women about their experience, and um, that was that was very meaningful. You know, if we think in terms of feminism, um, when we talk, you know, women on pedestals and what was what was horrific what is horrific about that, um, is, you know, this idea that men uh, weren't hurting women, they were taking care of women. And until we unearthed what was aggressive about that, uh, the domination of men and the, um, 
the, the aggressive impulses of men to contain is to protect men from women, from the, from real women, <laughs> the real uh, feelings and, and emotions. And I think uh, when we think about institutionalization or care and cure um, kinds of agendas, it's also not, you know, some of it is to help disabled people be more comfortable uh, fiscally and to be to have opportunities and so forth, but a lot of it is to do it in a very contained way that is primarily about um, protecting non the non-disabled majority from the real us, <laughs> you know, our real force and, and, and will. I mean, otherwise, I don't think you would see, um, you know, a brand new building where the wheelchair ramp and entrance is off to the side in a less elegant, a less felicitous, a less bright, a less integrated way. I think, I think that's a mark of aggression. And I think we have to start labeling it as aggression. Um, that, you know, kind of that's where I'm, that's where I've landed um, in my thinking, and that's why dance um, is, seems to me, the ultimate frontier and the ultimate barrier um, against, against that kind of oppression and aggression. So I'm just going to let these next two run. We will hear uh, next from Dr. Sue Z, a Barnard alumna who was the first wheelchair user to attend Einstein Medical School and who is currently Chief of Pathology at Stony Brook University Medical Center. And then from Kai Feldblum, who is another Barnard alumna, who um, is a professor of law at the Georgetown Law School. Um, and is one of the principal authors of the Americans with Disability Act of its 2008 amendments and also of the Employment Non-Discrimination Act. And she talks about uh, coming out as a lesbian and also as a person with an anxiety disorder at um, uh, Harvard Law School. So first we'll hear from Sue and then from Kai and then Simi comes back at the very end to wrap things up. I was born in 63 and uh, I had polio when I was one. And this was all in Hong Kong, where I was born. So I grew up in Hong Kong uh, until I was about 10. And then my parents immigrated to the United States. Um, so the polio basically left me without any use of my legs. So I'm aging. And when I first came here, it's kind of a funny story. I, I have, at that time, in 1975, I had uh, four siblings, uh, three siblings. There were four of us. My father got a call from school and said, well, we saw that you have four kids. How come they're only three in school? So it was funny because uh, they didn't realize that I didn't have to go to school. Because when I was in, in Hong Kong, I was um, home to them and really didn't have any, I didn't go to school, basically. We, he said, oh, I realize that you can go to school. Of course you can go to school. I think that was the year they passed some kind of a law saying that regardless of disability, have to go to school. And, and it was also enabling people who are with disability mainstream into the classroom. I think that was the basis of the law. Because at that time, my husband was in a special school. Um, 
Hiroshima, and that's kind of a special school for people with disabilities. So when I get to Bonnard, the Office for Disabled Services was, was great, and they were very helpful and supportive. And also there were other people in, in chairs that you know, I can relate And one of the people was, was uh, Julie, um, and she used to work at the Office for Disabled Services before she passed away. And so that was really helpful for me. And Susan Quibby, of course, she was a, a you know, uh, we're supportive. Um, and again, I, I was um, happy to be uh, able to concentrate on my studies, but I have to worry about how's I going to get there. When to interview Einstein, they were very direct. They were, they never had anyone in the chair before. So, you know, they were, how are you going to do this? How are you going to do that? I said, well, I've always, there's always more than one way of doing something. You know, I, I don't, don't remember exactly what kind of things that they were asking me, but I mean, I think I gave them a, a positive um, outlook in in the way that I would do things, and that I I am you know able to do it. At that time, I felt that I was able to. They were reluctant because I think they never had anyone in the chair before going through medical school, so. I was waitlisted, and that means that they were just, they were saying, well, if there's a position open up, you know, you know in line to. So I think um, a couple of weeks later, I mean, they accepted me. So that was a hard part of my life. <laughs> it's interesting. I think, I and mean, this is a point about identity politics versus post identity politics, right? It's, I personally am a believer in identity politics in the sense that. We need to have a sense of a group that we belong to in order to create some sense of stability, usness, you know, who we are, what matters to us, what our values are. But in terms of true justice in the world, we have to break down the us and them divisions. So, but breaking down the us and them divisions doesn't mean having no sense of identity. It means having a sense of confidence and pride you know, in your identity, and then recognizing that someone else with a different identity, a different set of makeups, is of equal value. And you know, and that's part of my whole rectifying the tilt article is about recognizing that equality is not just treating everyone the same, because we're not all the same to begin with. You know, instead we have a dominant culture that sets sort of some normative assumptions. And then if you're different from that, and you're treated the same as everyone else, you're not going to be treated equally. You're not going to be treated, as I call it, as an equal. Treated with equal dignity. So yeah, everyone can come into the building. Everyone's treated the same. Not the building, the steps. Everyone's treated the same. By definition, if you were building that building with steps, you were not seeing everyone who's in society. Because if you did, and you were committed to treating everyone as equals, with equal dignity and respect, you would never build it with steps, because that means someone who's in a chair can't come in. You would say, I'm now I'm at Harvard. Right. So so but but I was thinking, being at Harvard, so what what was I coming to Harvard as? So what I was coming was someone who um, had at least some awareness of sex and sexuality, um, but not a deep sense of it. 
um, a sense of identity that was still very much around um, performing, producing, um, and performing and producing around justice and making change. Um, it was someone who had no self-awareness of herself as a person with a disability yet, that is, as a person with anxiety disorder. No clue. I mean, because my anxiety disorder simply manifested as productiveness, you know, as energy. So I was a very energetic, very lively, very, you know, and I had never failed yet. So again, because I'm anxiety disorder, that it, it can kick it when you fail, if again your sense of self is around producing. So none of that had happened. And so okay, so so the idea is that I so I performed well, did well, got you know, so there I am on law review. So my third year in law school on law review. I'm dating a guy, also on law review. And there's someone else in law review, um, whose name I, I won't use just because I'll read these things will be seen by some people. <laughs> and We're providing um, I'm totally attracted to her. She's completely butch. And during dinner, so I said, oh, let's go to dinner. She's also dating this totally cute guy in all of you. And uh, so we go to dinner, we're talking, and I said, so, have you ever thought about women? Because I thought, let me ask that in that more general way first. Then if it's, yes, then we can start talking about a specific woman that maybe she would be interested in. I really think about women. She was well. Yeah, I mean, I've thought about that. I could see that, but you know what? I, I could be with guys, and I could be with women, and, and being with guys will be better for my career. I remember it's like literally my jaw dropped. What I realized is that in the early days of disability, in terms of my professional focus, that I was very interested in sexuality mm-hmm. and the personal expression of pleasure and freedom. And what I came to was that that, that that the personal expression of pleasure and freedom um, and the private expression of public uh, of pleasure and freedom was made manifest there on the dance floor. Um, that it was a coming in all. And that I could still pursue the social justice and restfulness um, drive, but I could pursue it um, in a way that also had a lot of creative excitement for me. So that is what we intend to do today, pursue the social justice, social justice and lustiness drive, um, and we hope to have a good time along the way. Thus, it is my distinct pleasure now to introduce the moderator of this morning's panel, Rosemarie Garland-Thompson, who we had the pleasure of hearing from yesterday at Columbia University and who will both moderate and respond to this panel. And I also want to invite the panelists up at this time. Um, Rosemarie Garland-Thompson is a professor of women's studies at Emory University. Uh, Her scholarly and professional activities are devoted to developing the field of Disability Studies in the Humanities, and in Women's Studies. She's the author of many, many books, which for the sake of time I will not name, but most recently, Staring, How We Look, from Oxford University Press in 2009. And um, she's working on a book that is called Cure or Kill, The Cultural Logic of Euthanasia, which traces eugenic thought through American literature. Rosemarie Garland-Thompson.
Good morning. Uh, thank you, Janet, for um, organizing this conference, for that really marvelous um, set of introductory remarks, and certainly for the um, ethno ethnography of disabled women that you presented to us. Um, it's an honor to be here. It's an honor to moderate this fabulous plenary panel entitled Aesthetics and Politics in Action. I would like to introduce the panelists all together here so that you'll have a strong sense of the um, accomplishment and distinctiveness of these panelists as you hear from each of them. So I'll introduce them in order. First, an order of their presentation. First of all is Carrie Sandall. Carrie Sandall is an associate professor in the Department of Disability and Human Development at the University of Illinois at Chicago, where she is the director of the PhD program in Disability Studies. She is also the director of the new program in Disability Arts, it's Disability Arts, Culture, and Humanities that explores the disability experience through research on the arts and the arts as a research methodology. Her program is the new administrative home of Bodies of Work, a network of disability arts and culture, which is a consortium of 50 Chicago-based arts organizations, individuals, and nonprofits whose mission is to serve as a catalyst for disability and art that illuminates the disability experience in new and unexpected ways. Bodies of Art is busily planning a citywide festival to take place in 2013. We will all be there. Okay. Carrie's scholarly and creative activity explores how arts contribute to the creation of disability identities and cultures as they intersect with gender, sexuality, race, and class. She is currently working on a documentary film entitled, this is great, Code of the Freaks, that explores Hollywood's fetishization of disability. Her talk today is called The Limits of Accommodation, Ruminations on Being an Undue Burden. So uh, my talk today is called The Limitations of Accommodation, uh, Ruminations on Being an Undue Burden. My PowerPoint is, uh, includes a lot of the text that I'll be sharing with you, and I do know that it's a bit of a faux pas to read some things from PowerPoint, but I'm doing it as a reasonable accommodation for people who like um, visual reinforcement. On July 26, 2010, our country celebrated the 20th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act, also known as the ADA. This civil rights legislation has improved the lives of millions of people with disabilities and their families by increasing access to education, employment, public places, communications, and voting. But amid the celebrations and self-congratulations that were going on around me, I had many personal and professional experiences that exposed the limitations of this legislation primarily around the concept and the practice of reasonable accommodation. Now, I am not a lawyer, nor do I play one on TV. So I, if you ask me specific questions on the various titles, I'm going to have to defer to probably those of you who know a lot more about the law than I do. But I've, I'm, going, so I'm using it in a more general sense um, and as 
a metaphor grounded in uh, material experience. All right, so what is a reasonable accommodation? Well, in the ADA, if you look at the text, sometimes it's also um, called reasonable modification. So I just want to read to you from Title III, um, and this is from ADA.gov. A public accommodation must reasonably modify its policies, practices, or procedures to avoid discrimination. This is the, the next sentence is the key part. If the public accommodation can demonstrate, however, that a modification would fundamentally alter the nature of the goods, services, facilities, privileges, advantages, or accommodations it provides, it is not required to make the accommodations. Now, um, I, my, just as, I'm going to give it a couple of personal anecdotes. Um, I have an eight-year-old son who carries multiple mental health diagnoses. He has just been kicked out of his fifth school, um, and it's because he is not able to be reasonably accommodated in any of the schools he's been in. And I've realized through these experiences of finding a school, him getting kicked out, finding a school, him getting kicked out, is that the entire educational system would have to change to reasonably accommodate him. So we're in this kind of limbo um, with him. The other thing, um, the concept of undue burden. So if, if modifications would cause an undue burden and you can prove it, then again, the ADA re doesn't require you to make the modification or the accommodation. And it's defined as a significant difficulty or expense. All right, so what I found with accommodation and invoking accommodation is that fundamental aspects of structures of all kinds do not need to change, including attitudinal and architectural accommodations. And essentially, I found that this concept separates the disability community into two parts. We have the able-disabled, which is a term we use among ourselves for um, those whose presence causes minimal, if any, disruption. Um, and then we have, this is, I'm just making this up, the undue burdens. And I'm slipping more and more into that category and I'm experiencing more and more the limitations as my body changes as I age. Robert McGrewer in his book, Crip Theory, also I, I think his concept of the severely disabled um, is similar to what I'm calling the undue burdens. But the ramifications of this unspoken categorization in terms of um, professional opportunities and outcomes for artists is what I'm going to talk about today. Next. So in my research in the arts, I've found these limitations in terms of arts education and training, professional development, art making practices, but also in some surprising ways in how it generates aesthetic alternatives. So what my um, argument is going to be today is that where reasonable accommodation ends, deep structural change begins. And that we need to crip, which I'll dis discuss later what I mean by that, the languages and practices of inclusion to show how it intentionally excludes. It doesn't unintentionally exclude. It intentionally excludes people with disabilities who are um, undue burdens. And for those of us who are involved in social justice for all disabled people, and not just the able disabled, we need to demand unreasonable accommodations. We need to invoke our identities as undue burdens because being a burden is what breaks the structure. I was thinking of like the straw that breaks the camel's back. You know, that would be me. 
Um, so my focus today is going to be on, from that list that I gave you of different areas in the arts that are, I see impacted by this limitation, is um, unreasonable accommodations to artistic processes, but how those can result in aesthetic innovation. So I'm going to provide examples from three performance projects. And before that, I'm going to give you a little note about language. Okay. I'm going to be using the term CRIP. For those of you who are unfamiliar with this insider term, it's a radical, positive resignification of a previously injurious term. And it's been taken up by people with all sorts of impairments. So it's not just describing people with um, physical or mobility impairments. And it's a term we like to use with affection, with anger, and with a wink. And then I'm going to be using CRIP as a verb, um, and you can also call it CRIPPING. And um, I've written about this earlier, as has Robert McGrewer, but basically, when you crip something, it's kind of akin to queering something. But basically, when you crip something, it spins mainstream representations or practices to reveal their able-bodied assumptions and exclusionary effects. And it reveals the arbitrary delineation between what is considered normal and what is defective, and the negative social ramifications of attempts to homogenize humanity and it's irreverent. So uh, one thing I like about it is its political correctness, because political correctness can mask the jagged edges, the underlying beliefs, and the potentially productive fissures in any given structure. So what I want to talk about first is crip time, which we've experienced already today, <laughs> um, which is some the, the extra time that it takes um, people with disabilities to perform certain tasks or do certain things because of the way our bodies or senses are configured. And um, I want to talk about CRIP communication, which you see happening all around us here with interpreters and, and um, the captioning. Um, but basically, um, when we were creating the script for a video called the Scary Lewis Yellowthon, which is a wicked parody of the Jerry Lewis Yellowthon, with this group called the Mickey Faust Theater in Tallahassee that I was part of. Um, we, uh, the writing team was trying to come up with the script collaboratively, but what was happening is because of crypt communication, um, non-disabled people who were part of the company were just getting too frustrated with us because we weren't working fast enough. So basically, Terry Galloway, who is deaf and a lip reader, and she's up there looking like Jerry Lewis, and uh, Lori Violette, who's the, um, playing little Lori Little in the chair. And I, we got together and we had our own script development meeting. Because the issue was, Lori has cerebral palsy, which Josh Blue would say is the sexiest of the palsies. <laughs> and she has a, a CP accent, so Terry could not read Lori's lips. And so what would happen is, and Lori was, a big part of it was Lori's contribution. So Lori would, would say what she, her contribution was. I would have to try to figure out what Lori was saying. And then I would have to, to repeat what Lori was saying to Terry so she could read my lips. And this process created so many misunderstandings, miscommunications, and I mean, it was hilarious. We created, we generated so much material about, um, just because we didn't understand each other, that we ended up working that material into the script. So I think a lot of times it's just what's considered an undue burden can actually, you know, it was just really funny and it was absurd. And that tone and some of those 
um, elements we came up with ended up um, being important to the script itself. Okay, next. The next one I'm calling Crip Comportment. And this is, to me, one of the most intractable ones that I've had at disability arts events. And this is what I am, when you have significant numbers of um, undue burden type people um, who are in audiences, and maybe their impairment-related behavior is considered disruptive. So I want to talk about um, when I was on the board of the Center for Independent Living in North Florida called Ability First. And we started a series of performance fundraisers. And um, I brought in Lynn Manning, who's a solo who has a solo performance called Waits. And he's, he's blind. And that's significant to the story, as you'll find out. So anyway, after his performance, the, the board met. And we had gotten many complaints from non-disabled audience members and disabled audience members about how disruptive the audience was. We had people um, who came in a bus to attend the performance who had never been to the theater before. And they wanted to know, okay, they wanted to know whether um, this group could attend this performance because it was billed as a disability performance. And we were like, sure, come on in. And they spoke back to the stage. They were loud. They said inappropriate things during dramatic moments. And so anyway, some of the people who we were trying to raise money from were very upset by this inappropriate behavior. And then I was mostly disturbed that some of my disabled friends on the board were saying, well, maybe we should have two events, one where we could invite the people who were disruptive. And so like we had to show the proper face to the non-disabled community who we're trying to get money from. And for me, it was like, to me, the event was a beautiful demonstration of a disability community at work. And Lynn handled it beautifully because Lynn sometimes says at the beginning of his show that, um, you know, I want to hear from the audience because I can't see you, right? I want to hear your feedback. So Lynn loved it. And also he comes from a performance tradition that's call and response. So for him, it was like call and response, sorry, um, with disabled audience members. So Lynn wasn't upset about it as a performer. I thought it was great, but to me, that was another moment where if we really are going to create community, we need to allow some change. All right, so I've gotten a note that I'm out of time, so I'm going to skip my third mm -hmm. example, but I can talk about it later. Um, and this was about crip bodies being unreasonable with pain, stamina issues, interruptions for medical procedures, and travel difficulty. Mm -hmm. um, but I will skip that for now. So I want to end with a final um, provocation, which is, as feminists, we know the history of women's oppression based on our supposed lack of ability to reason, to be reasonable, to fit in, to not be burdens. And instead of meeting that accusation with denial, I urge you to consider the radical potential of being unreasonable and being an undue burden so that we can make new ways of being together possible. Thank you. Our next speaker is Alice Shepard, who earned her PhD in Medieval Studies from Cornell and was Associate Professor of English and Comparative Literature at Penn State University. Mm -hmm. In 2005, she resigned her position to learn to dance. She studied the Kitty Lungs to make her debut in 2006 yeah. with Infinity Dance Theater at the Joyce Soho. She then joined Axis Dance Company in 
2010 Summer Institute with Liz Lerman Dance Exchange. She is particularly intrigued by movements that challenges conventional understandings of disabled and dancing bodies. Alongside Axis's dance and performance schedule, Alice is at work on her second book, a scholarly work about disability and dance, tentatively entitled, and this is a wonderful title, Back Matter. Her talk today is called Unruly Bottoms in Dance. Most of the professional dance world claims that the architecture or form of the dancer's body predetermines her ability to dance. Belief in that connection enables the gatekeepers to control the dancer's height, muscle tone, and weight. My paper today is about what happens when a disabled dancer encounters this discourse of body, movement, and control. My thesis is simple. Movement is the movement. The movement of disabled bodies is so radical that it undermines the gatekeeping and opens the door to new aesthetics of the moving body. Ringer appeared on NBC's Today Show. Her crime? Wobbly arm fat. Forced to defend herself, himself, Ringer, uh, Macaulay responds by transforming Ringer's fat into deformity, into disability. Quote, My own history makes me intimately aware of what it is like to have a physique considerably less ideal than those I have mentioned. And this is Macaulay talking about dancers whom he considers deformed, fat, uh, spinal curvature. Acute asthma in my childhood gave me a chest deformity that often made me miserable into my adolescence. It was ameliorated by major thoracic surgery at age 20. He continues, and there's no link here? On my doctor's orders, I lost 20 pounds last year. End quote. For dancers of African descent, body gatekeeping is even more personal, as Benediction Godshot notes. Chapter by chapter, she explores the restrictions on hair, feet, thighs, and yes, on the buttocks. Dance technique and ballet technique in particular require the butt to disappear. In response, a non-disabled black dancer working in the mainstream ends up making one of two choices, tuck and suck, or proudly shake it out. Standard ballet instruction, oh, now I'm on, to tuck. And desiring to speak back to this tradition, Jawale Willajo Zala created Batty Moves. And Batty is a word in Jamaican English for booty. So we're talking about the butts. <laughs> now performed by Zala's urban bushwoman, Batty Moves talks about the dancers' history with their batties. One by one, her dancers come forward and wrap their stories about their booties. Scholarly analysis of Batty Moves takes place usually within dance or performance studies. Critics apply race theory, critical race theory or feminist frames to engage the history of women's sexuality, bodies, and objectification. Such approaches almost universally refer to the history of Miss Bartman, the so-called Venus Hottentot, and they point out the liberational and celebratory aspects of the work. They highlight the political message. 
I found only one essay that claims a black feminist disability approach. Ms. Hobson uses Riddell, Rosemary Garland Thompson's work on freakery to say, a carnivalesque body is a disabled body, and it must be accepted as such without healing or curing medical intervention. None of that current criticism understands disability as a material reality of the body. None of the work posits the possibility of a disabled dancer with African descent. These celebratory readings are, to me, as much gatekeepers as Macaulay is to Ringer. To begin with the body, and you've all seen plenty of my ass at this point, and to begin with my ass. In public, and in particular, in dance places, I frequently name as my ass the carbon composite platform on which I sit, and or my two red rear wheels. It's a deceptive shorthand. The addition of a carbon, titanium, silicon, but does not mean that I lose my rather fleshy, fleshy ass. I gain an additional rear. In so doing, I create for myself a complex embodiment of two or three asses, depending on how you count them, and anywhere between two or six legs, as Lauren Dawson notes. Read negatively, this fleshy metallic mix is excessive. It is on a continuum with the kind of excess that leads disabled bodies to be seen as freaky, but it is my body, and it is the body with and in which I dance. The architecture of me is in tension with the architecture of the places that stage and teach dance. As a studio, Steps in New York has justly earned a place of the history of dance. It is a place where dancers at all levels take class. The architecture of the historic place is beautiful, and it's on 71st, 72nd and Broadway, over the fairway. Um, but the design of the building makes it possible only for a certain kind of dancer to get there, the one who can climb the stairs and fit in the non-ADA-compliant elevator. To get to dance class, I have to unbelt myself, stand up, dismantle my chair, do something with my dance bag, hold the elevator door, take the wheel off, gimp in, put the wheel back on while holding the elevator door, sit down, find my dance bag, close the elevator door, and go up. Usually I do it in public before a bunch of non-disabled dancers who are like... <laughs> the inaccessibility of the environment forces me to move in ways that uncomfortably extend the form of my wheeled body. But I find it a complex dance and disability studies moment. With conventional disability rights analysis, the lack of access and the injustice it creates are clear. But in that analysis, I suspect that the movement I perform to get inside the building registers primarily only as functional adaptation to a hostile environment. I see it as dance. My body's capabilities vary. On the days that I have that movement available to me, I want a framework that does not force me to choose between dance and adaptation. Cultural disability analysis focusing on disability aesthetics and tends to the movement itself and the forms it creates and the forms that created it. Tobin Sievers presumes that disability aesthetics, quote, embrace beauty that seems by traditional standards to be broken, yet it is not less beautiful, but more so as a result. Note, it's not a matter of representing the exclusion of disability, and that's an important point, but of making the influence of disability obvious. This goal may take two forms. To establish disability as a critical framework that, that questions the presuppositions of the underlying definitions of aesthetic production and appreciation. Two, 
to elaborate disability as an aesthetic value in itself worthy of future development. That phrase was created last week in rehearsal. It's a practice phrase. It was created by one of our dancers under the task of create a dance phrase that is the essence of Alice's body and then teach it to Alice. The phrase recognizes the power and the pleasingly aesthetic form of the traditional symbols of my brokenness. It acknowledges all of my asses as the initiation point of my movement, the center of my technique. For me to say, as I did say to you, movement is the movement. It is to recognize how my disabled form, the disabled architecture of my body, puts me in motion. It is to recognize how that motion challenges and influences others in the dance world. What do the gatekeepers think? Alan Ulrich, San Francisco Chronicle, November 2009. Who, 20 years ago, could have believed that a dance troupe that integrated conventional dancers and dancers with disabilities could flourish on the basis of artistic merit alone? <laughs> the New York Times is even better. Bruce Weber, New York Times, November 2010. Access Dance Company currently has seven dancers, four of whom are physically disabled and performing wheelchairs. The initial impact of this on an audience is vexing. It's a visual mixed metaphor, and you can't help feeling, well, sympathy for the dancers without legs. Like much that is surprising in art, however, Axis's work instructs the viewer in how to appreciate it. The lesson is delivered with cogent force. Sympathy is irrelevant. Forget what isn't here. Pay attention to what is. Recognize the chairs for what they are and not as substitutes for what they are not. Thank you. Our next speaker is Susan Schweik, who is Associate Dean of Arts and Humanities and Professor of English at the University of California, Berkeley. She's also the recipient of the Chancellor's Award for Advancing Institutional Excellence. A former presidential chair in undergraduate education for disability studies at UC Berkeley, she has been involved with the development of disability studies at Berkeley for nine years. During that time, she was also co-coordinator of the Ed Roberts Fellowships in Disability Studies postdoctoral program at Berkeley. She has taught and co-taught undergraduate courses in ranging from disability in literature, disability and digital storytelling, to race, ethnicity, and disability. Her other teaching and research interests include 20th century poetry, today of in her talk, late 19th century American literature, women's studies and gender theory, urban studies, war literature, and children's literature. She is the recipient of Berkeley's Distinguished Teaching Award. So she's built lots of institutional structures. She is, and this is very important, the author of The Ugly Laws, Disability in Public, which was published in 2009 from New York University Press and is recently released in paperback so you can all adopt it for your courses. Thank you. I love that last line. That's, that's the kind of introduction you want. Thank you so much. I'm so excited about this event. What a panel. 
Um, there's a little preface to my talk first, and it uh, involves the image I'm showing up on the screen. It's a painting from sometime in the late 1500s that was part of a cabinet of curiosities in Innsbruck, Austria. And here's how it was described by uh, Volker Schoenweiss and Petra Flieger, who did this really amazing uh, participatory action research project, disability arts project, organized around this painting in um, 2005. So this is their description of the painting. The painting shows a naked man with a disability lying on his stomach on a dark green cloth which rests on a table or a pedestal. The limp and deformed body is painted in an entirely realistic style. The curator has been able to verify that the body of the man was originally covered by a sheet of red paper. If a patron wished to see more, he or she could lift it and take a direct look at the naked body. Okay, that's the preface. And now here's my talk, which is called Advanced Directive, or Can You Hear Me Now? Uh, last year, a medical ethicist, well-known medical ethicist, uh, Joseph Finns, was interviewed by the New York Times, and I expect many of you read this article. And what he was interviewed about was a new scientific discovery uh, that the brains of people who were diagnosed as being in um, severe vegetative states or minimally conscious um, were actually uh, revealing conscious brain activity when their brains were being scanned. Uh, language centers were lighting up. And not only did that suggest that people who were thought to be utterly beyond consciousness, some people actually might be conscious and locked in, uh, but what this particular study did was they began working with a man who seemed in every way unresponsive, and they began neuroimaging his brain, and they figured out that for all of us in this room, our brains will light up at the same, in the same place when we say yes or no. And so they tested with this man, and they began to ask him factual questions to make sure that the yeses or the noes were accurate. And after they did that for a long time, they realized they had a new form of assisted communication through brain imaging, and they could talk to this man. So what Joseph Finn said was, we've opened up a communication channel with this technique, but in some ways, it's like a very bad cell phone connection. And that was the, the quote of the day in the Times. Uh, so Finns is particularly concerned about the uh, ethical implications of this new form of prosthetic communication. Uh, and what he's especially interested in is how uh, answers to yes or no questions that are asked um, through this means might invalidate or contradict previous advanced directives that people made. And what do you do if somebody is giving a different answer to questions that they, they signed about before, about what their wishes were. And he says, if you ask a patient whether he or she wants to live or die, and the answer is die, would you be convinced that that answer was sufficient? We don't know that. We know they're responding, but they may not understand the question. Their answer might be yes, but, and we don't know how to get to the but. Now, I can personally think a lot of, of a lot of interesting questions that maybe they're actually asking. I mean, it goes on and on, like, uh, well, I'll just say two because I don't have a lot of time. Like, do you want me to be asking you these questions? Or uh, are you experiencing this as an invasion of privacy? Uh, but anyway, we all get why the life and death question is of interest to Finns. As Alan Roper wrote in his comment on the new study, physicians in society are not yet ready for, I have brain activation, therefore I am. That would seriously put Descartes before the horse. Now... <laughs> 
I don't know exactly why the Times didn't pick that quotation, but um, I'm more interested in the one they did pick, Finn's line about the uh, bad cell phone line. Um, my talk today is about how disability arts and activist culture has taught me not to fear the bad cell phone connection. And in fact, not just to relax about its ordinariness, but to celebrate it and in the context of art, to court it. I heard Finn speak direct, uh, recently, and as I thought about the problem of communication and advanced directives, it occurred to me that as a person who's in the process of getting divorced, I'm keenly aware that what I know I want and I'm willing to sign on the dotted line to seal it may change over time. Wedding ceremonies are a form of advanced directive, and we know enough as a culture to build in ways out of that advanced directive down the road when experience brings us new information and decisions. So I'm pretty wary of much direction in advance. And at the same time, if you're ever going to be trying to decipher whether I want to live or die, or if I'm ever going to be trying to decipher it for you, a few conversational rules of thumb in advance would be helpful. So what follows, can you hear me now, is my advance directive. My advance directive would say nothing about what I want or might want in the future because I don't know. It would consist entirely of suggestions about a few things that the person or people trying to figure this out on the spot should do to be prepared for the occasion. All these things involve exposure to disability arts culture. Although somebody suggested to me yesterday that I might suggest that people watch Showgirls, so just do that too. <laughs> the phrase universal design suggests a dream of unimpeded access. Disability justice is often figured as the removal of barriers. But in disability culture, as both the speakers before me made clear, it becomes clear that in a very real sense, access is in impediment as much as it is in contradiction to it. Things take longer, are clunkier and clumsier. These layered, extending, static communication channels get accentuated in some of the most interesting work in disability arts culture. They get toyed with, and several things happen in the process. Access gets built in from the ground up rather than added on, and the ethics of the communication channel are self-consciously explored. And Carrie already talked about this. My advance directive asks this. Before you decide what I'm saying or what I'm trying to say or want to say, or before you decide what you want to say about me or how to describe what you're seeing in me, let your brain be activated by some of the work in disability arts culture that engages in what I'm going to call twice-described description. And then what I want you to do is twice behave yourself. <laughs> I'm following here on the heels of Richard Schechner's famous definition of theater as twice-behaved behavior, performed for pleasure. The theater is appropriational, wrote Schechner. Theater can take something and play with it, either mimetically or through repetition. The very act of twice-behaving distinguishes theater. Now, disability culture conventionally involves sign language or uh, audio description or captioning, an extra grid of once describing. But I'm talking about something more than that. And here are a few examples of what I mean when I'm talking about disability art that engages in twice-described description. It might be description commenting on itself, engaging in bad twice behavior in order to foreground the power dynamics the unconscious desires and the conflicts and the ethical binds that attend the blandest act of describing in a culture of ableism. 
Pay especially close attention to these when you interpret my brain activity, please. For instance, don't miss the production of Kate O'Reilly's classic disability arts work, her play Peelings, which is put on by Gray A, the disabled-led theater company in the UK. And I'm going to read you just a little bit from O'Reilly's introduction to the play. She describes the play as an attempt at total communication. We have taken certain devices such as sign interpretation and audio description and woven them into the fabric of the text. It's an attempt to subvert but also explore the theatrical possibilities of these devices while making them central. So in this play, three women with these huge costumes um, are tied to chairs. Um, and they're part of a set design for a production of the Trojan Women, which is going on somewhere else. And uh, so that's a play about um, epic warfare and women um, in relation to it. And the three women use the devices of theater, uh, including narration and audio description and sign language interpretation, even when there isn't any apparent audience at all. The, this is Kate O'Reilly. They bicker, play, interrupt, and share the devices, sending them, them up, ruining each other's moments, passing easily between the formal roles they play, like actor or being an interpreter or a describer, and being themselves, like suddenly they go, they heckle, or you know, they do that kind of thing. And they obviously lie at times. For instance, there's a moment in the first scene when two of the women are pretending not to understand what sign language is, and as they're saying, I don't understand what sign language is, they are signing. That's a typical example. The cultural artifacts I'm directing you to in advance also involve description, aware of who gets the power to describe, who in the room gets let in, who gets let in the room to do the describing. They might make art that aims not just for thick description of disability experiences, but for thickened description, art that invites in the so-called thick tongue or the putatively thick in the head, the rerouted connection. I don't have time to go into the examples of the kind of work I'm thinking of uh, that I'd like you to be exposed to before uh, you decide anything about my life or my death or my yeses or my noes. But I'll just say, my advance directive would invite you to check out the BBC radio adaptation of Victor Hugo's Hunchback of Notre Dame, uh, which was done in 2008. We all know about the hunchback's hunchbackness, but the hunchback is also deaf in the novel. And um, in the BBC radio version, a deaf actor played Quasimodo. Um, it's quite amazing. And, and the script and the performance process and the surrounding apparatus, uh, they tried to find a structure in which, first of all, English mimic deaf syntax, and then there's all kinds of twice-described describing as a deaf actor performs in the radio studio, and then as the radio company tries to think about what deaf access to radio is. Another example I want to point you to, Shira Avni's short animated film, John and Michael. And I'm not even going to talk about it, I don't have time, just Shira Avni, you can find this on the web, John and Michael. Finally, consider exploring the communication channels opened up by Quiet Bob 97 in his videos on YouTube. Quiet Bob 97 identifies as hard of speaking. He describes himself as voiceless, not speechless. Uh, he um, has no larynx, so he uses an artificial larynx and produces um, audible speech that's audible in different ways than 
we ever hear speech as. So go to Quiet Bob 97's site over and over as you think about what to make of a bad cell phone connection. Know what lexicon we're speaking in through our communication channels, you and I, especially you. Before you decide what I'm deciding, take a look at the marvelous dictionary organized by activists in conjunction with uh, the display in Innsbruck in 2008 of the painting I showed you at the beginning and described. Disabled people in the community gathered together to produce a little word book to accompany the viewing of the painting. This is a great little, this, this is such a portable idea, what they did. So what they did is they produced a series of words which different people came up with, disabled people in Innsbruck, of words that it would be important to define and to med meditate on uh, before you lifted or shredded that imaginary red sheet of paper that still hides this image. Um, and guards this image and turns every encounter into a kind of prurient interest. You might start by paying close attention, for instance, to their entries on Laban and angst and their entries on embarrassment and loneliness and ambivalence. Because the entries are in German, you'll have ample time to enter the space of translation that you and I are occupying. One last thing. This is how I direct you in advance. <coughs> Understand, you are not dealing in silence. Think of what you are up to as a version of what literary critics call ekphrasis. You are producing a verbal description of a visual image of my brain firing. Make it a thick, a twice-described description. Think of yourself as producing a work of art that describes a work of art. <clears throat> Approach me the way Richard Lovelace approaches the painting that he described in his poem titled Upon the curtain of Lucasta's picture, it was thus wrought. Lovelace requires a long pause before access to Lucasta. And the last line I'm about to read you insists on an understanding that you won't only be drawing, that is, pulling aside a veil, you'll also be drawing that curtain, creating its outline, its thick cover for yourself. So here's Lovelace. Oh, stay that covetous hand. First turn all eye, all depth and mind. Then mystically spy her soul's fair picture, her fair souls, in all so copied from the original that you will swear her body by this law is but its shadow, as this its now draw. Our final speaker is Nirmala Ervelas. She is Associate Professor of Social Foundations of Education and Instructional Leadership at the University of Alabama. Her research and publications are in the areas of disability studies, multicultural education, feminism, and sociology of education. She has published articles in several journals, such as Educational Theory, Studies in Education and Philosophy, the Journal of Curriculum Studies, Disability and Society, and the Journal of Literary and Cultural Disability Studies, among others. Her book, Disability and Difference in Global Contexts, colon, Toward a Transformative Body Politic, will be published, yay, by Palgrave, uh, by Palgrave Macmillan in 2012. The title of her talk today is Enabling a Materialist Aesthetic of Disability.
Thank you so much for inviting me here today. And it's kind of hard to finish up a panel that was so brilliant, so I'm going to do my very best. The, I'm going to be starting my paper. Actually, I'm going to be interviewing in my paper the, po the poetry of Palestinian-American poet Suhair Hamad throughout the presentation. So if there's a shift between my pedantic prose and lyrical poetry, it's her, not me. Okay. And I start with Hamad. We spent the 4th of July in bed. Even now, walking girls are exploding legs, stepping on shells of American hatred left dug in Iraqi soil. Even now, Malaysian girls choose between sex trade and hunger. Filipinas go blind, constructing the computer disks Poems like this are saved on. Even now, lover as we lay in amazement, and if, baby, as you say, my skin is the color of sun-warmed sand, and you're my moonless night, and we the beach, wet, tidal, all that good, shh, wet, in her brilliantly evocative essay, Mama's Baby, Papa's Maybe, an American Grammar Book, African-American literary critic Hortense Spiller writes, and I quote, before the body, there is the flesh, that zero degree of social conceptualization that does not escape concealment under the brush of discourse or the reflexes of iconography. In this essay, Spiller's startles her readers into recognition of the stark materiality of the body as constituted within the violent history of slavery. Spiller's conceptualization of the flesh as primary narrative of embodiment proposes a visceral theorization that could arguably exceed equivalent contemporary theories of racialized, gendered, queer, and or disabled bodies. Referring specifically to the middle passage where black bodies jammed like animals in the holes of merchant ships were transported as human cargo to be sold as slaves in the new world, Spillers describes this terrible journey through the primary narrative of the flesh with, and I quote, its seared, divided, ripped apartness riveted to the ship's hole, fallen or escaped overboard, unquote. It is this primary narrative of wounded flesh that I turn to in order to conceptualize a historical materialist theory of disability. But I do this with much trepidation, fully aware that I am invoking quite problematically a vision of tattered flesh, of bludgeoned body, of victimized subjectivity images that fit uncomfortably with any radical aesthetic of disability. But I mean to be provocative, to trouble any easy conceptualization of disability, especially at the intersections of race, class, gender, and sexuality. Spiller's essay painfully unearths the violent history of slavery that gave rise to an American grammar that continues to this day to propagate dehumanizing depictions of black bodies, both male and female. 
In Spiller's analysis, grounded in the originating metaphors of captivity and mutilation, what becomes exceedingly clear is that it is the materiality of racialized violence that becomes the originary space of difference. By materiality, I mean the actual social and economic conditions that impact disabled people's lives and that are concurrently mediated by the politics of race, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, and nation. I propose here that Spiller's essay is as much about the materiality of racialized violence as it is about disability, and more specifically about the materiality of disability identity. While there is merit to the argument that disability is the most universal of human conditions, there is an implicit assumption here that the acquisition of a disabled identity always occurs outside historical context. Spiller's argument reminds us otherwise. In the specific historical context of slavery, the attribution of disability to the female captive body, for instance, enabled this body to become a site where the flesh became the prime commodity of exchange in the violent conflation of profit and pleasure. In this case, I situate disability not as the condition of being, but of becoming. And this becoming is an historical event. And further, it is its material context that is critical in the theorizing of disabled bodies and subjectivities. Conscious of the danger of invoking an ableist aesthetic, my project here is to echo Robert McCrewer's provocative question. What might it mean, and I quote, what might it mean to welcome the disability to come, to desire it? In response to this question, contemporary scholarship in disability studies have turned to philosophers Deleuze and Guattari to theorize the disabled subject as the irregular contingent effect of shifting signifiers producing disorganized collections of hybrid associations or assemblages that morph into an unstable and transgressive body without organs. No longer marked as abject, these transgressive theories of embodiment fiercely embrace a form of contra-aestheticism, aestheticism, I'm using uh, Tobin Sieber's term, that marks the normal, rejecting disability's limited role as prosthetic in identity politics and engaging in a more transgressive political act of coming out crip or cripping. And I'm here I'm using McCrewer's term. Exciting and critically necessary as these theoretical interventions are for an outlaw ontology of disability, my project angles the analytical frame more purposefully to foreground the transnational historical context that enables becoming disabled. And I'm using Hamad again. And though my head is filled with your sweetness now, this same head knows Nagasaki girls pick maggots out of stomach sores with chopsticks. Hiroshima mothers rock headless babies. This head knows Palestinian youth dead, absorbing rubber bullets, homes demolished, trees uprooted, roots dispersed. This same head with all those love songs and husky whispers knows 
As we lay and love, our touch is not free. It comes with responsibility. On one level, my project does not appear very different from feminist scholar Margaret Schildrick, who also conceptualizes disability as becoming in the world, as a material engagement, often through the direct contact, contact of flesh and blood encounters that do not simply affect us on the surface level, but affect the very constitution of embodied being. My difference with Schildrick begins with the critical significance I place on the transnational historical context in which these social encounters between ourselves and others occur. While Schildrick acknowledges that the historical context of globalization might disturb and distort the intercorporeal possibilities between diverse bodies, her embrace of an ethics of encounter results in an affective response to difference rather than a transformative one. In fact, a transformative politics is shunned because deluses horizontal rhizomatic proliferation of linkages that Schildrick embraces, rejects the recognition of any vertical and therefore hierarchical relationship between self and others. The problem with horizontal rhizomatic proliferation is that it is rendered inadequate in the historical context of transnational capitalism, where bodies encounter each other, often in violent collision, where captivity and mutilation are no metaphors, but instead inform a brutal materiality that foregrounds the hierarchical binary of master-slave. Here, Deleuze and Guattari's desiring machines cannot support the seamless horizontal current of flow between intercorporeal entities now interrupted by the hierarchical social relations where productive desire that is constitutive of some bodies is enabled through the consumption of the seared, divided, ripped apart, mutilated flesh of other bodies. It is, it is this violent moment of intercorporeal assemblages that produces disability and it's becoming in the world foregrounds a dialectical tension between the historical and the contemporary, between production and consumption, between desire and need, between continuities and discontinuities, and between the conditions of possibility and the violence of its limits. By conceptualizing disability as becoming in the world while rejecting at the same time it's a historical association with lack. I reframe McCrua's question to ask, within what social conditions might we welcome disability to come, to desire it? In raising this question, I situate desiring disability as a historical condition of possibility that does not reproduce social and economic exploitation. And I'm ending now with Hamad again. I gotta tell you now, there ain't enough good feeling to push the pain and awareness out. Not enough nothing to make me forget. And I ain't no woman of steel. It feels needed, this kiss, that touch. There, that rhythm needed and wanted. Now hold me a little while longer, just a bit, cause we gotta get up soon. There's a war on outside. Come on baby. 
we got work to do. Thank you. I'd like to offer a very few remarks that may help us bring together these four really amazing papers uh, by my beloved colleagues who are also, and this is in deference to Alice's vocabulary, kick-ass, <laughs> activists, artists, and academics. I want to call attention to one of the I think most important contributions that disability studies makes to the generation of knowledge in the world, and that is to offer new vocabulary, new ways of talking about things, new ways that clarify, new ways that open our paths to the project of social justice. So I'd like to call attention to the cultural work of language and begin by the premise that the language that we have available to us in the dominant culture into which we are all acculturated is inadequate language, it's discriminatory language, it's language that... obfuscates rather than clarifies our project of disability studies. So part of what disability studies does, and this panel was exemplary in this respect, is to offer up fresh, vivid, precise, and non-discriminatory language that helps us reframe disability because the language that's available is particularly virulent and inadequate. So I'm going to call together or suggest three possible realms that we might want to consider in terms of the cultural work of language. One is the politics of self-naming, much of which was uh, brought forward here today. For example, Carrie Sandall offered us the idea of crips um, as part of a way of naming um, the identity group that um, is disabled, that is a productive way to think about and to talk about and to frame this group of subjects that comes precisely from within the identity group rather than a definition or a name that is imposed from the outside. One example. Um, another politics of self-naming, which I think is very important that I'll use as an example, or the politics of naming perhaps might be more accurate, that doesn't come from our panel, but I use these examples quite often, is the um, language offered up by our colleague Georgina Klieg, who is at the University of California, Berkeley, in a book she wrote called Sight Unseen. If you haven't read it, you should. Uh, she makes a distinction between the subject positions of blind people or a blind person, which is a um, subject position that is very well known in the dominant culture. And she brings forward another subject position that is less available to us in understanding the dynamics and the politics of disability. And she talks about sighted people. She talks about the subject position of sighted people. And when I was teaching this book, uh, one of the students 
said to me, a woman who identifies as a lesbian, a woman who identifies as biracial, a woman who's very in touch with, ver with terms of identification, both achieved and ascribed. And she said in a moment of wonder, I never thought of myself as sighted. And I thought, this is a really important piece of work. This is a cultural realization, the kind of cultural realizations that are brought forward today. Another example of that comes from one of our colleagues whose name is Alice Drager, who wrote another kick-ass book on uh, conjoinment that's called One of Us. And she, much like Klieg in Sight Unseen, names what I call the veiled, non-dominant subject position, and that is the subject position, uh, pardon me, the veiled, dominant subject position that is not brought forward in culture very much by telling us that, and I presume everyone in this room could identify or identifies with this subject position, and that is the subject position of a singleton. We are singletons in the sense that we are not conjoined. And this kind of, um, I think, fresh and interesting naming is very important. Much of this occurred today. Some of the ideas that were brought forward have to do with subjugated knowledge, that is to say, ways of being in the world that are non-dominant, ways of being in the world that go unrecognized, ways of being in the world that are discriminated against and imagined as unlivable ways of being in the world. Many examples came forward today. I particularly um, liked the idea of the new definition of butts that Alice offered up, multiple asses, if you will. That is to say, the understanding of an ass as being the fusion of flesh and metal. I think that Carrie Sandall as well offered us some interesting uh, new terminology that is non-discriminatory. She speaks about the way our bodies are configured rather than using the dominant conception, which is to say what's wrong with us or what's wrong with you. She offered up the very interesting idea of a CP, cerebral palsy, accent rather than talking about this distinctive way of speaking as a speech impediment, which is the dominant way of understanding such ideas. Alice offered us as well the idea of movement as the movement, which I think introduces the third category of language that does important cultural work that I want to offer and that is the new language of disability as theoretical language. So movement is the movement is a particularly important example of that. Susan Schweik offered us as well a twice described description which I think is a really wonderful way to talk about the what, might, what Carrie Sandall might call crip time, uh, the alternative way of being and thinking and uh, understanding the world that is part of disability experience. I also just wanted to say that twice described description for me invokes um, a yummy comfort food that's twice baked potatoes. <laughs> and somehow I want you to get that one in there. Um, 
Nirmala Ervalas offered us um, very important critical vocabulary that comes from disability experience. The idea of becoming in the world as a way of describing disability experience rather than describing it in the dominant way of a problem to be solved. She reminded us as well, I think, of Tobin Sieber's very important concept, and that is contra-aestheticism. I'm sorry to say that we have to end now um, because I think it's lunchtime. Uh, but thank you all for coming. Thank you for this wonderful session. Thank you.